So if you're wondering why I chose uh, Richard Sibbs on entertaining the Holy Spirit, it's not because I had some great interest uh, in entertaining the Holy Spirit and I was really excited to share that with you. It's because I really had no idea what that meant. Much like Travis taught us a couple weeks ago on, I can't remember the topic, but yeah, casuistry I think is what we agreed on. <laughs> casuistry. I think is, that's what we agreed on, right, Travis? Yeah. <laughs> so much like, much like Travis, I have the privilege of uh, teaching on something that I knew nothing about, but which I have a much easier time pronouncing. So um, let's introduce Richard Sibbs first. Some of you may have heard of Richard Sibbs. He was a highly impactful Puritan. He lived in England, but he was highly impactful in both England and America. He's, uh, he's well known for this work on entertaining the spirit, or at least it was viewed as some of his most important work at the time, but his most well-known work is one with which some of you may be familiar, which is known as The Bruised Reed. Have any of you heard of or read The Bruised Reed? Heard of it? Lots have heard of it. Has anyone read it? None have read it. Excellent. So. <laughs> There is, I can guarantee you, there is an idea in the bruised reed with which it, most of us, I hope, are familiar, which is this idea that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Is this an idea that you've at least heard of? So I have learned, and don't worry, I've not read the bruised reed either. So um, this idea, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, is one, I think, which is become very common in modern, even in evangelical parlance, and especially in the Reformed world, we know this idea. And this is where it came from. At least this is where it seems to have originated first in publication. But Spurgeon said about the Bruce Reed that Sibs scatters pearls and diamonds with both hands. So if that's not an encouragement to read that uh, short work, then I don't know what is. Um, Sib's idea with the Holy Spirit was that we should welcome the Spirit as a friend who desires good for us. And his whole point with this is that, again, looking back on the shorter catechism, God is wholly good. Yes, he does everything for his glory, but he is completely in control, and everything that he does, he works for the good of believers. And so, if there is one friend who we should welcome most into our life, if there is one friend who we should trust most to give ourselves over, over to, who else but the Spirit? Um, Richard Sibbs, in his personal life, really valued this idea of friendship as well. He was never married, uh, but he built up an enormous network of friends. He viewed his friendship as a ministry. He had friends in high places, as they say. He was friends with lawyers, doctors. He made many acquaintances around England. Um, and in keeping with this, we are told that Sibs avoided controversy whenever possible. And so he was very influential. He, tell, he felt very strongly about the Holy Spirit. And yet, when controversy or opportunities for controversy arose, Sibs was not the first one to step out there. He thought that, quote, to preach is to woo. And he said the main scope of all preaching is to allure us to the entertainment of Christ's mild, safe, wise, victorious government. So I think very, at the very offset, <clears throat> Sibs is a character that we should um, 
we should welcome into our minds and we should give serious consideration. But at the offset, this brings to mind something which is somewhat controversial um, in some circles, which is the idea of being a winsome pastor, a winsome preacher. So what does it mean for a pastor to be winsome? And what are the pros and cons of such a style? I see some smirks, some, some people knowing what I'm referring to. And I don't think we can deny that Richard Sibbs might have been described as winsome. So let's challenge that. Travis. I think there's a difference between if you were to ask what did it mean versus what does it mean. Okay, fair enough. Because the PCA for years was known for their winsomeness. And now I think Pastor Dan, what did they change to? What did he do? All the way at the back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Purposefully did not define the term.
Yeah, certainly so. <coughs> Any other thoughts? Yeah, I like that analogy. So I've heard from an apologetic standpoint the idea of putting a rock in someone's shoe, this idea of you don't have to win them over all at once per se, say something just enough that'll, that'll bother them. Say something that'll get in, in their head, that'll stick in their mind. And this idea of being winsome, and I think this is very important for us so that, because especially in the social media age, this is why I bring this up, Travis's point is very important, that when we see especially people from a different time than us, Puritans, for example, who have kind of implicitly won our trust, and so we will go to bat for them and try to figure out really what they mean. But when we see things like to preach is to woo, we have to understand the context of that. We need to search out what it really means. And Travis's point about getting a definition for winsome is very important. There's two ideas that we could have. One is this more modern idea of winsome, this is what people tend to mean, even if they won't say this, of tolerance. We've heard tolerance that turns into universalism. Well, all are welcome here. We're all about being nice, not, a, not even really about loving you. We're, we want to be nice. We want to make sure that we're accepted by the culture. We want to make sure that everyone feels welcome no matter what. And if everyone is welcome, there's a sense in which no one is really welcome. But this idea of winsome that Sibs is going after is the idea that John Piper is so famous for, to win your passions towards, to win your heart towards God, to show God as truly beautiful, to show Christ as truly beautiful. And this is what Nick 
um, brought up earlier, which is how can you see Christ as beautiful? How can you desire God, as it were? It's, you have to know the problem before you desire the solution. You have to know your sin. And that's where us Reformed folks get in a lot of trouble. Is we want to hit heavy on the sin part, but it's necessary. You have to know your sin before you, uh, before you can have any desire for God. Let's move on to uh, the next discussion question. So we're talking about the, the idea of the indwelling spirit. When in the Ordo Salutis, and this is just the order that our, our salvation occurs, when in the Ordo Salutis does the spirit come to dwell in us? When does that happen? It breathes life into you? At the very beginning, okay. Any other thoughts? Okay. Has to be at the beginning, okay. Any other uh, any other uh, thoughts on this? We all agreed. Yeah, Sib said that we are indwelt by the Spirit at the time of our regeneration. It is the Spirit who does so. It's the Spirit who regenerates us. And so, this then by necessity means that we will not immediately see fruit of the Spirit in one who is indwelt by the Spirit. We think of the classic example of the thief on the cross. He's an easy one to point to. There's a reason why we always point to the thief on the cross, but it's a good example. And we all start where the thief on the cross started. Now, most of us do not die within hours of being saved, but in many cases, or in all cases, it would seem, all but the most miraculous, we are indwelt by the Spirit. We are truly changed to the core, and we don't immediately start seeing these fantastic good works. And so, what is it that the Spirit is doing in us? The Spirit is knitting us to Christ, Sib says. The Spirit is acquainting us with God. So it is through the Spirit, it is by the power of the Spirit, by the introduction of the Spirit, that we are, we come to know Christ and God and we come acquainted to them. We commune with God through the Spirit. <clears throat> this growth is a very gradual growth. So as a seed is planted into the ground and you water it and you tend to it, keep the bugs away, it doesn't sprout for quite some time and it doesn't fruit for many days or weeks after that, so it is with Christians who are saved very often, you may see sprouting within a short amount of time, and yet we don't always produce this drastic change, this fruit, immediately. And Sib said this is part of the working of the Spirit, not only acquainting us with God, but helping us to come to love Christ, teaching us to love his ways, to conform ourselves to him. And so if this is the case, how can we know that we are indwelt by the Spirit? Okay. 
So we are, yeah, you know my faith by my fruits and also the genuineness, the consistency, so to speak. Yep. Amen. Yeah, so there are many ways, and <clears throat> we do need this. We need this assurance. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite verses, 1 John 3, 19, through 19 and 20, By this we'll sh we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So there are times when we need this assurance, and even when we have our doubts, it says God is greater than our heart. His judgment is greater than the judgment of our heart. And so he gives us these, these assurances because he knows that we will need them. And he knows that we will have to rely on them. So what are they? They are the fruit. They are the genuine love of Christ. Just as if you are... <clears throat> um, I'm speaking about something I've never done before, so you'll forgive me. But just as when you're hunting an animal... <clears throat> at least when you used to, uh, you would follow their tracks, especially if you're hunting them in the woods. If it's been snowy and you're hunting someone in the woods, you follow their tracks. You look for signs, the broken twigs. If you're hunting down a deer that you've shot, you look for blood if it managed to make its way away. So you see signs of someone. The spirit will leave its signs following behind someone who is truly indwelt by the spirit the fruit of the Spirit, the things they say, the loves of that person. And we know that um, from the Spirit, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so whatever this person is talking about, whatever this person we hear very often, that you can follow somebody's heart by where they put their money, all of these things are evidences of the Spirit. Sib says that the revolution and overthrow of our old nature comes upon conversion, while the government of the Spirit is established only in a process as we learn more of and abide to the constitution of our new life in Jesus Christ. How is this relevant? So using this idea of government, there are two main uh, institutions, so to speak, by which our heart can be governed. We may be governed by the old man, by sin, by our old heart, by temptations of the world, by our, by our worldly desires. And in that case, we are of the old man, Adam, 
And when we are saved, that government is overthrown and we are given over to the government of the Spirit, to the dictates of God and His law. And even though upon our conversion this happens instantaneously, we are not always brought into accord with all of God's laws immediately. And so this government of the Spirit is established gradually. And impatient as we may be, it's, it takes time for us to come into accord with that. And so it may take some looking, especially for someone who is newly saved. It may take some patience. It may take some time to begin seeing this fruit of the Spirit. Um, but we look for the confession. We look for these subtle changes. And we give patience to the Spirit to bring us in accord with the law of God. Most importantly, with this analogy of the government, we have to understand that warfare is necessary. Spiritual warfare will take place because even though the government is overthrown, all of the henchmen of that government are still around. There are parts of your flesh that will be fighting against the Holy Spirit um, even to this day and for our entire lives. Paul in Philippians says, speaking of becoming perfect, he says, not that I have yet achieved it or am yet perfect, but I strive after it. So if even Paul, when he was writing Philippians, had not yet achieved this perfection, we can trust that we will not achieve that perfection on earth. And yet God has promised us that perfect sanctification in heaven. So we trust in the spirit that warfare is necessary. Okay, so what does all of this have to do with the indwelling of the Spirit? Well, that question is very simply answered by asking, how are we going to carry out this warfare? By whose strength are we going to fight against the flesh? In our own strength? Well, it's just flesh against flesh. Whose command are we going to trust to help us fight against the flesh? It is only by the Spirit. It's only the Spirit who can lead us in that. And so we must treasure the Spirit. And the way that we treasure the Spirit is by our self-denial. You must deny your flesh. You must take up your cross. You must trust in the power of the Spirit. It's like, well, you've put a heavy burden on me. But it's not. Once again, the Spirit is the one who empowers us for this. And you'll, hopefully you'll forgive me if I say Spirit about 10,000 times during this Sunday school. But that's what it's about. <clears throat> So the Holy Spirit strengthens us and empowers us for self-denial and, and for battle against sin. And Sib says, if we be sound Christians, the Spirit of God will enable us to do all things that we are called unto. And so we can trust in the Spirit. We can rest in the Spirit. And rest in Christ. He has bought this for us. Next, Sibs talks about this, the Spirit as one who seals our souls. And he goes a little bit of a different route whenever he talks about the sealing of the Spirit. But just to get a, um, the flavor of everyone's views on this, when you think of sealing of the Spirit, what does that mean? What does it mean for the Spirit to seal our soul? You're never lost. You're never lost? Okay. Good. Yep. What's that? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. You're made separate for God. Yep. 
other thoughts? Victor. Sign of ownership, yep. Yes. Yep, the ceiling, a sign of ownership, good. Yes, good, good. <clears throat> so you've all hit on interesting points, and I think if you take together the sum of your answers, you'll see how even though Sibs' answer seems different, there is a lot of similarity with what Sibs has to say about sealing. It's not that Sibs would deny this idea of ownership, but it's that he viewed it with a different priority. So you have to remember Sibs, the one who avoids controversy, the one who values this friendship, he's the pastor of pastors, he, he, he wants to, to woo in his preaching. His concern with sealing is going to be very pastoral. And so whereas I think most of us think of sealing as this stamp of belonging to God, like a stamp in wax, Sibs viewed it from an assurance perspective. And so in that sense, when many of us would talk about you are sealed, you have been sealed, Sibs would say you are being sealed as a process. It's a very subtle difference, but it has to do with assurance, and it's because Sibs focused on the ceiling from a more subjective, that means our experience, rather than God's experience, so to speak, or God's perspective. And again, this is because he has a pastoral focus. He wants to talk about this in terms of personal assurance. So ceiling then, according to Sibs, is a gradual process, and it often comes with growing and spiritual maturity. So Sibs separated believers out into three general categories when it comes to their stages of being sealed, so to speak. There are those who have real saving faith, but they are plagued by fear and anxiety. These are the ones who, at the slightest, at the slightest uh, trespass against them, at the slightest temptation, at some suffering in their life, they will, they will doubt God. Even if they have a minor doubt, they will have doubts about their faith. They have not built up this faith reflex, so to speak. And by that he means 
having experienced trials before, you have practiced exercising your faith in those trials, and you have built up this habit of your first response to a trial is to have faith, to trust in God rather than to turn to doubts. This is something that I hope many of us take for granted. This is what we do when we experience trials. This is what we strive to do, at least, even when we fail. And people who are earliest in this have not built it up yet. They need, most of all, the encouragement of close believers, not just on Sunday, but every single day. They need believers praying for them and reaching out to them and holding their hand through this process to help them build up this faith reflex and to show them what it looks like. Their assurance of salvation is disrupted, uh, or sorry, this is the second group. The second group is those whose assurance of salvation is disrupted by occasional anxieties, um, but often in this group, strife will bring them closest to God. So their, their faith reflex exists, but just as when you go to the doctor and they, they tap your knee with the hammer, their reflex isn't gonna strike at a light tap. It takes a hard wrap across the knee to get them to kick out. And so it's a little bit contrary to what you would think, but when they go through the hardest of struggles, their reflex is built up to lean into God because they see their need. It is so obvious to them there. And yet these subtle anxieties, they forget to pray. They forget to pray whenever they're worried about making it to the end of the week with the money that they have in their bank account. They forget to pray when they're on, on the way to work and they're running a little bit late and they get angry in traffic. They forget to pray whenever they're having some scuffle with their spouse about something. They forget to pray when they're not sure whether or not they should take this new job. So they forget to pray about these small anxieties that they feel like they can handle, and yet God is there even for those things. God wants us to lean onto him, and the Spirit wants us to lean into him even for these things. And those are those who, these are the ones who are partially sealed, so to speak. And the last are those who are sealed and have full assurance through all trials and difficulties. And Sib said he, he recognized, I mean, someone to have full assurance no matter what with no faltering, of course, is a rare thing. And this is a gift given to saints in the most trying of times. This is the gift given to Daniel in the lion's den. This is the gift given to Paul whenever he was imprisoned. And this is a real gift, this sealing of the Spirit, which comes and it is for all believers. And God will grant it to us in our time of need if we pray and we lean into him. But of course, Sibs is cautious. He doesn't want to avoid or he doesn't want to lead into some mystical view of the Spirit. And so he says, all of this, always, the sealing, it must be rooted where? In the scriptures and evidenced by sanctification. So how does the Spirit give us assurance? He teaches us truths. He teaches us, reminds us of encouragements, and he turns us to the scriptures. And so then if we're going to have that sealing of the Spirit, we also must turn to the scriptures. I'll move a little faster here. We've got eight minutes. The Spirit is also a comforter. <clears throat> the Spirit has given us, um, or Christ rather, has given us promises of suffering, not of ease. And so if we are going to face spiritual suffering, we need a spiritual comforter. We need one who can lift us up. 
And there is no greater comfort than the comfort that comes from the Spirit. Think of it this way. The Spirit is God dwelling in us. God coming to us, not through the secondary means of pastoral counsel, the hug of a friend. Even though these things are so valuable and so used by God, the indwelling spirit is the immediate, no other mediation, the immediate comforting of our Lord. He is with us. Just as Christ tabernacled, they say, dwelt among those during the times of the Gospels, the Spirit dwells with us. He dwells among his church with each of us. And so when our spirit is deeply injured, there is none who can lift us up other than some greater spirit. This is what Sib says. And there is no greater spirit than that of God. So how do we receive the comforting of the Spirit? First, we search our soul for the source of its disquiet. So we have to do some work. Look for what's disquieting us. Seek out what is troubling us. Seek comfort by the Spirit. Submit this. Pray to God. Tell Him what is our trouble. And then comfort, once again, just as the sealing of the Spirit, comfort will come through the power of the Spirit teaching us the scriptures, causing us to listen to his word, enlightening us to new truth once again, and not new truth, but old truth with a new understanding, something that we have read a thousand times perhaps, and yet God only now teaches us what it means. How apt is he to do that? The quieted soul, after going through this comfort, will achieve communion and peace with God regardless of worldly strife. This is the peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that we can only have in Christ. This is what we are to seek in the Spirit. And lastly, Sibs wants us to know, to warn us really about grieving the Spirit. And again, this is an idea that I've hit on at the very beginning. Sibs thinks of the Spirit as our friend, our greatest friend. So how do you grieve your friend? That's the ways that you grieve the Spirit. So first is giving way to sin. This is ignoring the counsel of our friend for that of the enemy. We listen to the advice of our enemies, those who want our harm, rather than listening to the advice of our best friend. Sib says, What greater indignity can we offer to the Holy Spirit than to prefer base dust before his motions leading us to holiness and happiness? What greater unkindness, yea, treachery, to leave directions of a friend to follow the counsel of an enemy, such as when we know God's will, yet will consent with flesh and blood, and leaving a true guide and following the pirate. If that's not convicting to you, then I think read it again, maybe. But this is what Sibs has to say. How treacherous, what indignity, What shame do we try to cast upon the Spirit when we will listen to our enemy, to our own flesh, and not to the Spirit? Sins of believers grieve the Spirit the most because we are his friends. The Spirit is not surprised by sins of those who are not believers. And of course, he's not surprised by sins, but he is grieved by them when believers 
Sibs, interestingly and very um, contemporarily, if that's a word, uh, says don't put on the badge of busyness. Do not busy yourselves with worldly concerns, thinking that just because you're very active, then that means some high spirituality. But uh, as we are taught in Thessalonians, we are to live a quiet life. We are to care for our, the worldly needs of ourselves and those around us, but don't busy yourselves with worldly needs, but rather concern ourselves with spiritual things. And most importantly, we have talked about several things that the Spirit does. Do not take the Spirit's office away from him. The Spirit wants to do these things. This is his office. This is what he does in our souls for us. Rely on the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit to strengthen you, to teach you the scriptures, to comfort you. Do not grieve the Spirit by taking away his office. <clears throat> so in conclusion, I'll sum it up here. The Spirit must be integral to all Christians individually and to the church as a whole. We, we rest in the Spirit. We all need the Spirit. And if you do not feel that in your soul, please go home and meditate on this and search the scriptures and pray that you would understand what it is that the Spirit specifically does for us. We are to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. Again, read the scriptures where they make you uncomfortable, where God calls out something that he loves and you do not love it. Search your heart. Seek diligently to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. To hate sin, even sin that is accepted by our culture. Even sin that is accepted around America. Seek to hate that sin and to love what God loves. Share your thoughts and plans with the Spirit as a friend. In prayer. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. How do you do that? One way is, of course, not literally, but one way is, as you're going about your day, share your thoughts and plans with the Spirit. Talk to the Spirit. Be dependent on the Spirit in your prayer for counsel, comfort, guidance, and communion. Do not seek to hear a voice magically speaking in your ear. But when you, when you speak to the Spirit in prayer... Accompany that with the scriptures. Read your Bible every day. Pray every day. The, the Spirit speaks to you through the scriptures, which are living. This is not a dead text. It is the word of God. And understand that by the Holy Spirit, we can have a measure of heaven before we arrive, as Sib said. Any closing thoughts? All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are grateful for what Sibs has taught us. We pray that this would encourage us, lift us up, cause us to set our hearts on Christ, to give ourselves to the counsel and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and not to forsake scripture, but to accompany prayer and scripture together. Lord, as we are moving towards our called worship service, we pray that we would set aside worldly things that we would concern ourselves with the worship of God, that our hearts would be genuine, and that you would receive our worship, and that you would bless us by the preaching of the word, the singing and prayer, and that by all these things we would be brought closer to Christ. In his name we pray.